0: So please let yourself come back in, find a way to sit that's comfortable and at ease. As people are coming back in, I have a, I have a question um, that just would help me a little bit. How many people in this room were not here last Monday night? Please raise your hand. About half the room. Okay. Um, that's, that's useful to know. So Monday night's a little like a tide pool. People come in a little bit, they go, do something else, and then the tide brings you back in. So Happy to see you. Yeah, wherever you've been swimming. Uh, It depends on the phase of the moon, I was told. Ah, yes. So again, let yourself sit and be at ease as best you can. And listen, um, not so much because there's something that you need to uh, learn. You know, you missed last week's class, your grade will be, you know, a little bit uh, lower because of it. But no, actually, it's more that the teachings are meant to be reminders than something that we should take notes about. They're the reminders of something that we've always known. so if something sounds right, let it resonate with you, and if it doesn't, um, which there will be s- certainly plenty of, then just let it go. So as reflecting on what to speak about this evening, um, since it's the week of St. Valentine's Day on one hand, and it's also still the week of what seems like the build up to a war, although there's some hope that may not happen. But if if I remember correctly, the, the 14th Valentine's Day is also the day that the weapons inspectors are supposed to report to the UN Security Council this next round. So there's some kind of strange stars that are happening, bringing these together. And I thought I would take this difficult Dharma topic if you will, one of the more difficult diarma topics of eros and love, and maybe connected a little bit to the um, circumstances of the world. Um, because when we go out you know, to the market and so forth, you look at all the magazine covers and they're all kind of selling something, or not all of them, but either they're selling war coming or, or some kind of um, erotic or sexual message. That's the majority of them. So we're sort of, it's true, if you look at the covers, we're kind of in the middle of that. And in fact, desire, wanting, love, longing seems to run the world. Love and its absence. But also because in difficult times, when I despair, as Wendell Berry says, for my life and the lives of my children, I take myself to where the wood drake lies and listen in a different way in the natural world. Perhaps a nation that loves beauty, that loves its children, its women, its lovers, that loves its gardens and wilderness and art and music, is a little bit less likely to go to war is a little bit less likely to get caught in the madness of building more prisons than schools, in the madness of racism, in the kind of fear and insanity that, we, that happens when we lose our connection with law. And perhaps it's important in difficult times to turn off CNN and turn on Mozart. I was speaking with a wonderful teacher and friend, some of you may know Rachel Remen this last week, colleague talking about some work. And she uh, um, is a physician, and one of her great works now as a teacher in medical schools has been to devise a curriculum for 24 medical schools at this point to help young doctors and doctors-to-be to remember the love that's at the center of their um, intention to be physicians that so easily gets lost because medicine has unfortunately turned so much into business, as we know, and this kind of great loss, Um, and a lot of grief. And she said one of the practices she does, she'll sit in a room with a 100 young new doctors or doctors-to-be and so forth, and she will ask them to remember back close their eyes for a moment, and remember back to the moment when they very first had the thought that they might want to become a doctor. And then she goes on and she asks people to raise their hands um, for different years. How many were in college in their 20s when they were, when they first thought they might go to medical school, be a doctor? A few hands go up. How many were younger, age 15 to 20? Certain other hands go up, quite a few. How many were aged in high school? How many were aged 10 to 15, middle school? A whole bunch of hands go up. She said, how many of you had the thought you might want to be a doctor before age 10, age five, six, seven? And a third of the hands will go up. So it's so clear that it's a calling. It's something that's not just a profession, but there's something that calls us to that. And then what she asks them to do is to remember that moment and tell the stories. And pretty soon there are these people who have just finished, you know, um, maybe some rotation where they've been up all night and doing all these things, remembering what that innocence was of the first moment that called them to that particular art. Maybe our politicians could also do that practice, you know, and think back to what called them. Um, To all of us, there's a kind of innocence that we begin with, that we lose touch with. So I want to speak, as I say, as a kind of reminder, kind of take our time about this. Listen inwardly. Because if we reflect on our callings, if you will. In the end, what really matters when you have the privilege of sitting with someone who's dying consciously? The questions they ask are very simple ones, not how much you got, because you have to give all that up anyway, right? But did you love well? Did I love well? Did I live fully? Did I give myself to this earth? Was I able to offer my particular gift to this world? Could Did we give our gift to plant the seeds of beauty that are in us, in this world? I have this poster that I've kept for some years of uh, Vedran Smalovic, who was the cellist in Sarajevo, who used to go out in the war in Bosnia and in Sarajevo, In the afternoon, at four in the afternoon, didn't matter if there was snipers, didn't matter if there was mortar fire, and he would take his cello out. This is him playing in the bombed-out library of the town of Sarajevo, and he would play music to the people of Sarajevo so that they wouldn't give up hope and so they would remember beauty. to offer our gift because this force of love in us is like the grass that pushes itself through the cracks in the sidewalk. It wants to flower and blossom. It's unstoppable. Okay, somebody might raise their hand and say, well, this is all fine talking about love, but war is imminent, right, or it might be. People are hungry. There's so much injustice, there's so much suffering. We don't have time, we've got to get to those problems. Part of the teachings of the Buddha, in the simplest way, would be to say, calm down. (laughs) What we're after is not something immediate, but something that is eternal. This from Aldous Huxley He says, an idolatrous religion is one in which time is substituted for eternity. Future time, the idea of endless progress, is the devil's work, even today demanding human sacrifice on an enormous scale. An idolatrous religion, and you could say capitalism or consumerism or whatever it happens to be, is a certain kind of religion. Time is substituted for eternity. What does it mean to come back and live more in the timeless, in the reality of the present than in the fears and confusion and struggles of life, personal and global? Some years ago, Han wonderful, kind of Amazing Zen master and teacher, most of you know, began a series of lectures that came out as a book called Cultivating the Mind of Love. And when Thich Nhat Hanh's books on love, there are a whole series of them, you read them, they're these kind of beautiful and poetic, because he's a fine poet, descriptions of loving kindness and compassion and interbeing and interrelationships and how we do it. And so he was starting these lectures in Plum Village, which is his community in France. And talking about interbeing and connectedness and love and so forth. And people were sitting and listening like you and sort of some of them were half dozing because they'd heard a lot of lectures on loving kindness and compassion and so forth. And then in the middle of uh, the series of lectures, he was giving them every few days in Plum Village, he paused for a moment, just quiet, and then he said, She was 20 years old when I first met her. We were at the Temple of Complete Awakening, in the highlands of Vietnam. As I was walking up the steps to the temple, I saw a nun standing there looking out under the nearby hills. Seeing her standing like that was a fresh breeze blowing across my face. Oh, I'd seen many nuns before, but I'd never had a feeling like that. So he began that, and all of a sudden all those people were sort of listening to the Dharma lecture, (laughs) their eyes opened wide, oh, there's another story here, (laughs) you know. And he went on, and he says, please think about your own first love, do it slowly, picturing how it came about, this is like that practice with the doctors, where it took place, what brought you to that moment. Recall the experience and look at it deeply, Calmly with compassion and understanding. Looking into this first love, try to see its true face. When you do, you will see that your first love may not really be the first, and that your face when you were born may not be your true face. And then there's the question what is your original face? Who are we? How do we meet? When I first met her, it was not exactly the first time we had met. Otherwise, how could it happen so easily? If I had not seen the golden image of the Buddha on a magazine as a child, wanted to become a monk, our meeting would never have happened. If she had not been a nun, perhaps I would not have loved her. There was a great peace in her, the fruit of sincere practice that was not present in others. She had been practicing for some years, and she appeared like a Buddha, a flower and a Buddha sitting on the grass. Maybe the day before, the visit I paid to the hermit, tasting the pure water from his spring, was also there in our first meeting. The moment I saw her, I recognized in her everything that I had always loved and cherished. And so his book goes on, alternating chapters on compassion, loving kindness, and then telling the story of his love. And this is in the middle of the war. This is in the middle of the war because they're not separate. There was a practitioner on a retreat in the East Coast that I taught for a time, a woman who had gone in this last period, last decade, to work in Israel and Palestine as a peace worker. And she was writing her memoirs. She had seen a lot of terrible things, because terrible things are happening over there. People are killing one another, so forth. But she had gone and lived there for some years as a peace worker, and she was writing her stories which were already pretty compelling and interesting. But interwoven with her account was her love affairs with this Israeli man and those two Palestinian men that she met. She had a few love affairs in this time, and I have to tell you it made the story a lot more interesting to really. It did! It did, huh? Our lives are woven by what we love. You could say they're also woven by what we hate. And in some way, the two are not separate. Perhaps our hatred is a kind of deluded or, or twisted form of love. When I reflect on my own childhood, the main form of contact between my parents in our family was fighting and aggression. It was the way my parents made connections. You understand? Now, if I extrapolate from that, what is happening with North Korea? I mean, there is a connection, something that wants to get communicated. I mean, perhaps in a very, not perhaps, in a very frightening way. But what does North Korea want to communicate? What is Iraq? What is Iran? What are the Israelis, what do the Palestinians really want to communicate to us? And what would it mean to really listen? Oscar Wilde puts it this way, Who, being loved, is poor? Who, being loved, is poor? And to be loved in some way is to be touched, to be listened to, to be received. All these places. So now I'm going to try and talk about eros a little bit in this and see if this works. I don't know. We'll see. Eros, you know, I mean, it's become disneyfied with little Cupid and things like that. But don't think that Cupid's arrows are only from Disney. They are this enormous force of both attraction and uh, danger. <laughs> Remember that cartoon from Jules Pfeiffer where he shows this, you know, in this typical Pfeiffer fashion, shows this couple that have been having a hard time And finding in the last frame. The woman is there on her knees with her arms stretched out saying, but I love you. And the man in this particular cartoon is in the corner shrinking back with his arms across his chest saying, don't you threaten me, right? <laughs> <laughs> Because it also makes us vulnerable, doesn't it, to love? It does. Can we trust this world to open ourselves to be vulnerable? Diogenes writes, I have seen the victor subdue all contenders at the Olympics and be thrown on his back like that by the glance of a girl. Right? Not a little force, is it? What is this love in all its forms? this great, wonderful, terrible mystery. It's like consciousness. What is consciousness? To be awake, present, aware. What is death? It's such a mystery. It's like gravity, isn't it? And gravity pulls things together. Gravity allurement, it's called. It's the planets and the, the stars attracted to one another somehow it's built into us as well this incredible universal force my teacher Nisargadat maharaj talked about love at different times said if i am someone asked him i am if i am timelessly present then why was i born what is the purpose of this life N- 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 Nisargadat said to love but what does it profit if we, are, if we love? What does the real, the true, gain by this expression? What can we, get the real gain by anything? Nothing whatsoever. But it is in the nature of love to express itself, to affirm itself, to overcome difficulties. Once you've understood that the world is love in action, you will look at it quite differently. But first, your attitude to suffering must change. Suffering is primarily a call for attention, which itself is a movement of love. Whenever love is withheld and suffering allowed to spread, war becomes inevitable. Our indifference to the sorrow of our neighbor is what brings suffering back to our door. More than happiness, love wants growth, connectedness the widening and deepening of consciousness and being. And in this whole great mystery, there is only one movement, the movement of love. Now in the Eskimo language, they have 40 words for snow, all the different kinds of snow. It's so great in the Inuit language. We have love, one word for all these amazing different kinds. I love ice cream, I love butter pecan, you know, or, or uh, Cherry Garcia, right? <laughs> or whatever it is. It's a certain kind of love, it's the desire love, that's one love, you know? Or there's businessman's love, that kind of, all right, I'll love you if you love me back for a certain little exchange, you know that kind? Since a lot of you weren't here last week, I'm going to take liberty to fit a couple of things in that I read that I think fit well here. So this is an ad from uh, one of those local kind of little papers. Single black female seeks male companionship, ethnicity unimportant. I'm a svelte, good looking girl who loves to play. I love long walks in the woods, camping, fishing trips, riding in your pickup truck. Cozy winter nights spent lying by the fire. Candlelight dinners will have me eating out of your hand. Rub me the right way and watch me respond. I'll be at the front door when you get home from work wearing only what nature gave me. Kiss me and I'm yours. Call 543-8888 and ask for Daisy. The phone number turns out to be the Humane Society and Daisy is an eight week old black Labrador retriever. Right? So much imagination in love, isn't there? Right? Oh. You know, and there's personal love love for one another, not clinging, but really wanting the happiness of another. And then there's the love of the Bodhisattva, of the Buddha, of the being that loves all beings as as themselves. In one way, we could say what is central to the practice of the liberation of the heart is to deepen our capacity to love. And the Buddha's instructions on mindfulness, on mindful or sacred presence, to neither grasp nor resist what is so, but to open to life as it is, to see life deeply and truly, is an instruction in love." And there are all those blessings that we read when we do the loving-kindness meditation, you know. If you your heart deepens in loving-kindness, your dreams become sweet, and you fall asleep more easily, and wake in contented and contented, Men and women will love you and animals will love you. You know that list. You've heard me read it. This is an Egyptian version of it, an ancient one. It's the same kind of list. To love is as good as oil and honey to the throat, as linen to the body, as fine garments to the gods, as incense to the worshippers. To love is like a ripe pear in a woman's hand, it is like the dates we mix with wine. It is like the seeds the baker adds to the bread. And when we love, the days will be food set before us, dates and honey, bread and wine." That's 4,500 years old, that poem. Here we are. still tastes the same, doesn't it? Hmm? Love has graciousness, connectedness, it ennobles us, is a caring, because we are not separate. Now, one of the things we talk about a lot here as being critical is to learn to love oneself. It seems like half of people's spiritual practice in the West, at least for some decades, is self-acceptance and self-love. It's so hard for many of us. All the ways that we've been taught not to be ourselves, not to value ourselves, or the ways that we judge ourselves. You sit in meditation, and half your meditation is judging meditation, right about what you're doing. So I have this cartoon, "Life in Hell," from Matt Groening. You know, the little creature sitting there, I'm meditating, legs crossed. I am one in the now. He says. The only reality is the present. I am totally alive, surrendered to the moment. Now is the only reality I need. The moment is eternal, it contains all things, unending. Nothing is but this. And Then there's a little ding. Damn, microwave popcorn takes a long time. (laughs) So there's one part of us that wants to live in this eternal whatever, and the other is saying, "God, when is dinner? You know, how's the popcorn doing?" You know. And to to be honorable in love, we have to honor both of those parts of the paradox. That which is timeless and that which is here and now for this moment. And that which is, you know, magnificent in some way and that which is also needy in us, and our longing, all of that gets placed out in the garden, in the domain of love. Now, one of the mistakes in spirituality, especially when one hears the teachings about non-attachment and letting go that's part of Buddhist teachings, we do need to learn to let go. And actually to love really well means that we need to let go turns out love and possession don't end up being the same thing, they make conflict. But the mistake is that when we try to think of love as being unattached, it sort of fits into the old American independent spirit. I'll just be not attached to anything, right? The old cowboy spirit or something, or sort of the American pioneer Puritan in us. Well, you know, I'll be free and not attached. There's a type of person for whom God is always mixed up with vitamins, one person wrote, you know, and there's some way in which our spirituality can feel dry like a grim duty. And this isn't the truth about love, because we're not independent and we can't practice in an independent way. We are interdependent, and it is natural to love and it's natural to want love, and to want to be loved. And it's also natural to be dependent on others. Anybody in this room not dependent? Raise your hand. Or open your eyes, I would say. (laughs) (laughs) We depend on the people who to stop at the red light when our light is green or we wouldn't go very many blocks, would we? We depend on the people who grow the food that comes to the grocery store. And in this culture, we have a fear of dependency, somehow. A culture, the cultural bias against a dependency, any emotion or behavior that indicates weakness. This comes from Mothering Magazine. This is especially true in the way we push our children. We establish outside standards and rather than trusting them to wean themselves at the right time. We insist they finish everything on their plate rather than trusting that if we provide them with healthy food, Their bodies will tell them when to stop eating. We toilet train them, you know, too early in age. We don't trust their dependency. But dependency and insecurity and weakness are natural to a child and to all of us. And just as we grow from crawling to walking, from babbling to talking, from puberty into sexuality, as humans, we move from weakness to strength, from uncertainty to mastery. And when we refuse to acknowledge the stages prior to mastery, we teach our children to hate and distrust their weaknesses. And we start them on a journey of conflict with themselves that can last their whole life. Trying to measure up to something that is not true. Begrudging dependency because it's not independence is like begrudging winter because it is not yet spring. Dependency blossoms into, into independence in its own sweet time. We are interdependent of the times we need and the times we serve. Now, one of the other things that plays into this kind of misunderstanding about being independent, not attached, is also the monastic tradition from the Buddhist world. Because the monastic tradition is celibate. And there's a beauty when you meet somebody who's celibate um, and has chosen to do so, there's a joy to their celibacy. It's not like some grim duty or some trial. But there's this whole mixing up of things. Remember that story I read last month or so about the old abbot who was confronted by a young novice copying over the sacred texts week after week and saying you know master it seems to me that if we only copy from the copies we we might change something and and we'll never even know and over hundreds of years it could get you know really distorted master couldn't we copy out the text from the original would you you know couldn't we do that once in a while check so the master finally goes down in the catacombs and Goes to find the great, you know, original teachings that are there and doesn't come back. Hours and hours pass, and the young novice is really, really upset finally. Where's the master? And goes down the catacombs to find him and sees the master weeping, head enhancing. Oh no, oh no, master, master, what is it? And he says, Oh, the word was celebrate, not celibate. (laughs) But you think, okay, that's going to make it easier, don't you? Hmm? And it's not. As Meher Baba says, true love is not for the faint-hearted. When we have our men's retreats, which we've had most every year since before the retreat center opened here, um, very wonderful sitting in a circle with 70 or 80 or 100 men and kind of doing practices of attention and respect and of loving-kindness. And in the evening we'll hold council and throw into the center of the council a topic for men to speak from their heart after they've sat all day. Sometimes the topic is fathers and sons. Sometimes the topic is aggression or war. Almost always we'll do the topic of sexual history, and a half dozen or ten men will sit in a circle in the center of the room and tell in a brief version their sexual history from the beginning. First, what it was like and early, you know, imaginings and what they learned in their family and then what happened as a teen and, you know, in their twenties and thirties and forties. And as we listen and as they speak, even though there are some really beautiful moments, most of the time you could weep because sexuality is a blessing, and it is a wound. And that is true for almost anyone that enters this world, this current world as we are, this society. And so you listen and listen, and all you can do is bow to the struggle that's there as well as the beauty in those stories. And it's not just the men that come on retreats, you know. I did a survey 20 years ago almost, it was published in the Yoga Journal, a little research on the sex lives of the gurus. That was the name of the article. <laughs> did, you know. 54 different meditation masters, swamis, lamas, mamas, whatever. 39 of whom were sexually active and, you know, 15 were celibate. And as it turns out, you know, with birds and bees and all of that, They were like everybody else. Some were happily celibate, some were really frustrated celibates. Some were heterosexual, some were homosexual, some were bisexual, fetishist, transgender. There was those who had adultery, lots of affairs. There were those who were very dedicated in their marriage. There were those who were really conscious about their sexuality, and there are many more that weren't. These are the best, you know, the meditation masters and so forth. Which is to say, we're all learning together. That's the truth about it. It is, as human beings. And when the erotic arrows fly, well, it's a great force. That longing in us. It's love is also like music, isn't it? Okay, an erotic poem, I have to do that. (laughs) Oh my God, Um, often I'll read Neruda, but uh, this is Sharon Olds, called Topography. After we flew across the whole of America, we got in bed, laid our bodies delicately together, like maps laid face to face. East to West, my San Francisco against your New York, your Fire Island against my Sonoma, my New Orleans deep in your Texas, your Idaho bright on my Great Lakes, my Kansas burning against your Kansas, your Eastern Standard Time pressing into my Pacific Time, my mountain time beating against your central time, your sun rising swiftly from the right, my sun rising swiftly from the left, your moon rising slowly from the left, my moon rising slowly from the right, until all four bodies of the sky burn above us, sealing us together, all our cities twin cities, all our states united, one nation indivisible with liberty and justice for all. (laughs) So what might it be like if we took eros and personal love and passionate attraction and relationships as a practice? Because Lord knows it requires practice doesn't it? If we took it as part of our spiritual curriculum, the union, the surrender, the beauty in it, to not suppress our life, but to encompass it with our attention and our care. The same principles would apply that apply in feeling your breath and body and and states of mind as we sit in meditation. We would need to practice them True love requires commitment and presence. You can't just say, all right, I've meditated, now the rest will take care of itself. One young woman who was a student of Joshu Sasaki, an old Rinzai Zen master, went to complain to him. She said, my husband and I have been in the community for several years now. We got married a couple of years ago, and he is so devoted to the teachings of Buddhism then he's so focused on enlightenment and emptiness that we don't really have a, a a a live marriage. He's all focused on getting enlightened, and I'm wondering, where is my husband? You know, and this zen is ruining our relationship. So Sasaki Roshi called them in and said, You two, you come together to the next Sashin. And in the Zen Sashin you sit, you know, for a week, very intensively. And then four times a day you go to see the Roshi to answer your koan or your question. He gives you a koan, like what is the sound of one hand clapping, or what is your original face? So they came to see him and bowed after they were established in the retreat. And he said, here is your koan. How do you manifest Buddha while making love to your spouse? You must do this. You will sit one period and then you will go make love. And then you will come in and you will answer your koan. And then you will go back until you get your koan answered, right? And they that was their seshin. They had to do that until they could answer their koan. I won't give you the answer. I'll let you work that out yourself. So what would it mean to take it as our practice? True love requires commitment. Presence. When somebody says, how do you love if you're not attached? Instead of attachment, what's asked for is commitment. Not to possess someone, not to say, you be this way, I need you to be this way for me, but rather a willingness to stay open and present so that you too might blossom and grow. My wish for you is that you blossom in love, as hopefully your wish will will, will be that. Can you hear the difference between possessive love And the love that's based on commitment. It is the commitment the same as when you sit on the zapu. You know, if you sit there, all these different things will come up in meditation. You say, Well, I don't like this one. I think I'll go, you know, and open the refrigerator, and you get up after 10 minutes. The same in relationships. Something difficult comes. The idea isn't you get up or change partners, but to commit yourself to stay present, to deepen your love. When I perform weddings, which I used to do, I don't do much anymore. Um, I give a little secret mantra to the bride and groom, which is two words. The mantra is, this too. Because after a year or a month or a day or a few years, you realize, all right, I'm with this person. And I figured that I could accept this much but this is beyond the pale, I can't accept this. This is, I didn't know this about them, this is really, I can't, I don't know if I can hang with this one. And you bow, this too, this is the secret mantra, this too is part of the love. So the practice would be one of patience or constancy, of the cycles and seasons of love, of up and down. and It's not the perfection of the person, It's not the perfection of the relationship but it's the perfection of love itself to learn to love more deeply. Mullah Nasruddin, the Sufi holy wise man and fool, he was sitting in the coffee shop one day, a tea shop, and said, you know, they were all talking about love, he said, this love is such a great mystery, I wanted to love too. And they said, Mullah, you should get married. He said, oh, I tried. I looked for a wife, but I could never find. He said, I, I went everywhere. I wanted to find the right woman for me, the perfect wife. He said, and I went to uh, Cairo, and I met a woman who was really beautiful, but she didn't have a spiritual nature. And then I went to Isfahan, and I met a woman who was deeply spiritual and really beautiful, but we didn't communicate well. Oh, and then I went to Baghdad, yes, and there I met this woman looking for the perfect woman. And You know, I found her. We communicated well. She was deeply spiritual. She was beautiful. She was what I was seeking, the perfect woman. And I said, well, then how come you didn't get married? He said, well, there was only one problem. She was waiting for the perfect man. The idea isn't to find the perfect person. People are perfect only in that they are perfectly themselves. The perfection we seek is the perfection of love. The curriculum would be patience, constancy, the wisdom of imperfection. It would be generosity. In a love relationship, the equation is this. You give 80% and you take 20% and they give 80% and take 20% and then it feels like everybody's giving 50-50. That's more or less how it feels actually, it is. And I don't mean that you can't be in a relationship where you get abused, that you should leave, where you're really taken advantage of. I'm not ignoring that as a reality. But in a committed partnership, the game is to give. And that's what makes you happy in the end. Not to give in a way that needs something back, But if you give and they give, then something that is greater than the two of you is created. And you know it when you see parents take care of their sick children. My daughter's home this week with the flu. She's 18 and a half Um, chronologically. But right now she's about six, you know, lying there. Daddy, would you get me, you know? And it's so sweet. I mean, I don't want her to be sick, but it's so tender. We all get regressed. You know, and it happens all the time in my marriage. That's actually when we get in trouble. When my wife and I are kind of struggling and she said, listen, you know, I was the grown-up last week. (laughs) It's your turn, right? (laughs) So constancy, patience, generosity of the heart, equanimity. Because to love another is to bear witness to the sorrows of their life. My heart is broken, open. That is the poem. To stay in the reality of the present. But also, the willingness to sit with the sorrows of another being and to let your heart be touched and not try to fix them, to bow to them, to the sorrows they carry. And equally, to be in the presence of their joy to not be afraid of pleasure, of beauty, of touch, the soft animal of your body, love what it loves. Sexuality in the Buddhist teachings is actually quite neutral. It can be associated with grasping and fear and aggression and be harmful, or it can be associated with intimacy, communion, surrender, grace. And we long for that connection. And sexuality, sexuality is such a mystical thing when you really pay attention. And the sexual orgasm is like the pati more, that mo, that death, that little death, um, is one of the few times in life that we get really natural samadhi, natural wholeness, like when we come close to death, in which we lose ourselves. And if there's a grace in it, one of my friends, a Sufi teacher, said that actually in the Sufi tradition, it said that when a master, male or female, becomes more deeply, fully, deeply enlightened, they become sexier. And that doesn't mean in just a sexual sense, but it means in the deep sense of eros, of of loving life and the present. And I remember talking to Jack Engler, who's a psychologist at Harvard and a Buddhist teacher and a friend. And before he became a Buddhist practitioner, he was a novice under Thomas Merton at Gethsemane Abbey. And I said, Jack, what was it like with Merton as your novice master? What was Thomas Merton like? You know, And Jack kind of reflected about it for a minute. And he said, he was the sexiest man I ever met. Interesting description of this monk, but he was so present and alive. So the idea isn't to make this idealistic, it's not going to be easy, but to willingly bring our attention and our compassion to our close relationships as we do in our meditation. Now the fundamental precept is simply not to harm others that's the basic Buddhist teaching, through the misuse of sexuality. I always ask, how many people in the room have made idiots of yourselves in your sex lives? Don't bother. bother. We know the answer already. So it can be terribly painful, but it also can bring such grace. So it's simply to not act in ways that harm one another. And then as we enter this realm, it's like any other retreat practice we do. You know, the hindrances are which we teach in every retreat, for those of you who come on retreat, you sit, you know, and you face the desire and wanting mind, and your anger comes up, and your sloth and sleepiness come up, and restlessness comes up, and doubt comes up. We talk about how to work with these in meditation. Well, in relationships, the wanting mind comes up, wanting someone else, something different. You know the if-only mind? Right? I mean, I sat as a monk there, and I certain days I just had all these erotic fantasies. I don't want to be a monk, I want to have all these other things. But when I really listened, you know, which took some practice, actually, because there they were and, you know, they're enticing. But when I really paid attention to when they would come back, what I noticed is that before they came, I would actually be feeling lonely. And I didn't like the loneliness. And so, before I knew it, I didn't even conscious of loneliness. Before I knew it, here was this whole erotic fantasy, and it was actually about my loneliness. Sexuality also becomes a mirror. So, we face these energies, the wanting mind. What if I want something else? How do we practice with that? Oh, this is just the wanting mind, we know that. Or how about anger and judgment in our relationships? We each bring in our weaponry, I assure you. You've inherited on your mother's and your father's side a stiletto, a broadsword, you know. You have your arsenal, and so does your partner. And when things get tough, people tend to go back, you know, and bring out the weapons. So what does it mean to be in relationship and know that that's true and say, all right, this is anger, and not to harm one another? Sloth or sleepiness in meditation is complacency in relationship, taking it for granted, not really tending to our garden, ignoring. Restlessness, oh, i got to do something else, not tending to it. Doubt. Doubt comes, is this the right person, am I doing the right thing? And it comes so much because we're so wounded. When we become close to another, the intimacy of being close to another touches the deepest wounds that we have. And there's this great grasping and longing to fill ourselves up, to connect in some way, and all the fears when it didn't happen. The body of fear arises. And each of these arise as a kind of withholding of ourself from the moment, from the reality of the present. Always I thought you alone were to blame writes Ed Brown. But in this last instant, my eyes open and I regard you with all the tenderness and forgiveness that I've withheld for so long. So each of these things, judgment, sloth, anger, wanting, doubt, restlessness, they all come to us. They are the practice itself. They're the veils that keep the heart from truly opening to love. And you don't have to get rid of them. You just bow to them and say, oh, here's the restless mind. Here's the frightened mind, the body of fear, this too. And remember that there's a ground of being, a trust so much bigger than those. For what love is, is coming to face this great mystery that brought us into this world, that made the stars, that moves us, Ramana Maharshi, great Indian sage, said, there are two great paths to liberation. One is to inquire, who am I in this body? Who are you, really? And the other is to surrender in love. Maybe they're the same. And when we learn to love one person or two, close to us, a lover, a partner, a friend, a child, Then we learn that art that the Buddha speaks of in the Metta-sutta where he says, be like the mother holding her only and most beloved child, and then realize that every being that you see is someone's child, is your own child. Be in love with every being. It's hard to go to war when you're in love, you know? I mean, if you're really in love, it's even hard to go into the office and be in a kind of, some kind of battle. It just doesn't happen, does it? Remember? What if a nation learned this? I'm talking about individual practice, but I don't really see them as different. What if a community and a nation also learned the constancy of love, the generosity of love, the equanimity, the patience of love? The willingness to see the wanting and the fear and the doubt and the restlessness and say this too is just a veil over love. To begin to see each of us with the eyes of the beloved, the love of a bodhisattva. As Thomas Merton put it, he said this way The saints are what they are not because of their holiness but because the gift of sainthood makes it possible for them to admire everyone else. It gives them the clarity of compassion that can see the heart of goodness in every single being. The saints are who they are, not because of their own holiness, but because the gift of sainthood makes it possible to see with the eyes of love to admire everyone else. To be enlightened, says Zen Master Dogen, is to be intimate with all things. Here and now, moment by moment, we aren't going anywhere. We've been given this beautiful earth, this human realm, with birth and death and joy and sorrow to learn to love and to learn to be free in the heart in the midst of it. What if you let this love fill your day? What would you have to do in your life to nurture it as your garden? And what if we let this love as a society and a community and as a nation become the way that we lived on this earth? We have to start somewhere, you know, and we have to start sometime. As Martin Luther King Jr. says, our only hope today lies in our ability to capture the spirit of love and go out into a sometimes hostile world declaring the the eternal rejection of poverty, injustice, racism, war. This calls for a fellowship of beings that lifts neighborly concern beyond one's tribe, one's class, one's race, one's nation, is in reality a call for all-embracing and unconditional love for all beings. When I speak of love, I'm speaking of that unstoppable force which every great teacher and teaching has offered, the supreme unifying principle, the key that unlocks the door to the heart of all beings. Holy, 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 says Allen Ginsberg. The world is holy. The soul, the skin, the nose is holy, the tongue, the genitals, everything is holy. Holy the madman, holy the poet, holy the solitudes of the skyscrapers, Holy, the mysterious river of tears under our streets. Holy, New York. Holy, San Francisco. Holy, Peoria. Holy, Istanbul. Holy, Baghdad. Holy, time and eternity. Holy, the sea and the desert. Holy, the railroads and the visions, the eyeballs. Holy, the abyss. Holy, forgiveness and charity, holy our bodies and our mercy, holy suffering and holy magnanimity, holy the supernatural, extra-brilliant, intelligent kindness of the soul. Let us sit. That's the end of Howl, by the way, for those of you True love is not for the faint-hearted, yet what are you going to do with this one wild and precious life? So in just a moment, we'll do a very simple chant, a few seconds of a chant, and then go out into the winter evening. Take whatever touches your own inner wisdom from these words and bring it forth into the world. This is a time when the world also needs your care and your love. The people around you, the communities we live in, this place on the earth. Lord knows the body politic. And each of us has our way. Each of us has our voice and our gift and our offering of love. So this is perhaps for Valentine's Day. It's just a thing for each of us to consider how to truly bring that forth. Um, Next week, I will be traveling. I'm trying to remember who will be teaching next week. Do you have a... Oh, Julie Wester, wonderful. Julie Wester is one of the um, senior teachers here at Spirit Rock and a beautiful presence Dharma teacher. And then I'll be back the week after that. Um, I want to thank you all for your kind attention for your generosity in the support of Spirit Rock. We're in the middle of the two-month retreat so you may hear the bells ringing. And it's a beautiful thing to be on retreat. If you've never been on retreat for a week or more, it's one of the great things in life. Talk about love. Just to be in the silence and listen to yourself and the trees. It's quite magical. So when you can, please do that. So tonight we'll just do that one simple chant, you know, in the Buddhist, tradition in the text there's this one sutra called the text of complete and perfect wisdom enlightenment in 80,000 verses that's summed up in 8,000 verses and in 800 verses and fortunately for our sake this evening is summed up in one syllable. The reason this one syllable in Sanskrit is considered the summary of the text of perfect wisdom, the first and the last of all sounds is because it's the sound of opening or letting go. It's the seed syllable ah. And I see ah as the opening to then be present for this world. So let us chant ah, and you can let go of whatever wants to be released so that you are open to the beginner's mind of this moment, next and next. Ah uh... sweetness of that sound in your good hearts as you go through the week ahead. Thank you. Good night. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.